Howdy folks, welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Mills on the 4th. On today's episode, I'm chatting with guitarist Mark Phillips. Mark is currently playing guitar in Fishbone, but let me tell you, he's a session and composition ace. Dude wrote the theme for 2008's version of American Gladiators, Wipeout, Pawn Stars, UFC Countdown. Just check his resume, he's done a lot of music. We'll also talk about his East Coast roots, landing a job in Fishbone, and yes folks, I do ask that question. Anyway, check it out. So, how's it looking in California? How's it look right now? Oh, um, yeah. Just generally speaking, like outlook on life, like how are you feeling? We're shaking, you know, that kind of deal. Yeah. So what's shaking is that um, we are at this really strange inflection point with regards to the coronavirus out here where we started off and particularly like the neighborhood where Norwood and I live and Chris um, and Walt actually kind of um, like we had really, you know, uh, kind of aggressive countermeasures in the beginning in March and April and so forth. And, uh, you know, our case count, like, here locally was really low, hmm. really, really crazy low. Hmm. And, um, and I guess things have just exploded of late, and in the last, uh, I guess, 48 hours or so, like, there's no ICU beds here in Los Angeles, apparently. It's a little crazy there, but that's juxtaposed. It's it's really strange. Like I I went on a jog today, um, you know, a couple miles down the beach, and there was it's just weird that you know it's a crystal clear day, and it's like none of the little taverns, none of the shops, nothing's open, very few people out. I would describe it as kind of surreal, a tad apocalyptic almost, you know, like. Like, no one on the beach, just kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's a weird situation, you know, that we have going on largely in, you know, because of the virus. Um, and it certainly affects, uh, you know, um, like our ability to play and record and stuff like that, you know, because... Especially right now, uh, there's some statistic, I'll probably get it wrong, but like I think right now in L.A. County, some crazy number, like 1 in 80 people has COVID. Or some nuts thing Holy like that. Holy shit. Yeah, whatever it was was crazy. I don't yeah. Remember what it was. Yeah, so it's just you got to be, you know, can't be too careful right now. And I think... You know, you, everybody's going a little stir-crazy because this is one of those things that um, top to bottom, you know, there's really no kind of getting out of – no, nobody really has it that much better. I mean, all you can say is somebody might have a, a bigger house and more <laughs> – True. Like, like, like that's, all, that's about the only kind of, you know – reality changer would be like you know to be able to chill out in a different room or something hey, because thing right now is the equalizer so to speak in fact if they that's a, yeah that's that's exactly what i'm saying is that it's like it just really has us all kind of in the in the same boat now i, I mean sort of ironically my world hasn't really changed too too much because uh i have a my studio space down the street from my my house um i'm able to still go there so i'm kind of in that, i'm i'm like writing music pretty much every day and uh and then the band we rehearsed downtown and 
it's kind of it gets to be a little bit of an exercise because we all are testing right now and uh, it's like like I did my test on Wednesday I'm glad we, I think we were gonna try to do something uh, this week but I haven't gotten my results so I can't you know we're really trying to kind of be responsible because you know um, Everybody's got their moms and dads and grand, you know, whatever, other relatives and stuff. So. I went to your site, actually, and you mentioned that you play in this one go-go band that makes indie pop and go-go, right, called Young Caucasians. Yeah. Okay, is there any audio or any footage of that? Because the way you described that, I'm just really intrigued on what that would sound like. Um, yeah, and I, I will right off the bat say it's way more interesting on paper than it actually it's it's way better on paper than it actually was it wasn't it it didn't work as well as it could and in fact i will go further and say i later tried to kind of do a better version of it like i don't know 5 years ago and it it's still it, it's just a tough it's a tough thing to make quirky hooky pop work over that kind of fat Swing. It's just, I don't know, man. It, it was hard. I think that the only thing that they had going for them was that it was mostly white guys, which was kind of a um, a novelty. And so we would get paid. We would actually play like, we played at like the Bethesda Chevy Chase prom and stuff like that. Oh, uh, okay. It was, so, and and in terms of like Andy, the, the main guy from the band, um, he... It, we to to kind of clue you in on how it worked. Like we would do the Gogo was almost like this separate thing. He was he is a great songwriter, but like uh, it was always like kind of like how Bad Brains is usually like. There's like a few punk songs and then a reggae song. Yeah. That's kind of more what it was like. That, oh, okay. Like there was one song that was actually uh, you could probably. I'd be surprised if you dug. You could probably find this one song called "Right on Time," which was a for a local band at the time was kind of what you would almost call like uh, at a local level like a hit. Like people knew it called uh, "Right on Time," um, and that was a that is the best exemplar of like the pop and go go thing. Young Caucasians, "Right on Time," and it was like this kind of like go-go beat with this like catchy melody if you could imagine i don't know like like a 80s version of sugar ray with the go-go beat instead of uh you know i can actually say that believe it or not because i tried to do yeah. something like all right there's this one song i was working on for a solo project called too early for this shit right and i was basically trying to do like my nod to sublime but also mm-hmm. make it sound like if backer band was to cover sublime Right. It's still working at it though, but it's gotta get the bugs out. But speaking of which, um, cause okay, f- regarding like you know, cause there have been a few bands over this end, they'll try to mix between like go go and rock, not like how um, EU was doing, but like in a different way. It's one band called Black Alley, you know. Mm-hmm. I, don't know if, I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. Mm-mm. All right, imagine. All right, here's the funny thing about it is, I call what you know how like how does post punk. I call this style post go go or pogo. You know, uh. <laughs> it's like I know sheer coincidence. Um, right, right. You know, but it's like those those this one band where it's like they have like it's really 
rooted in go-go but you know it's definitely rocking there actually you know in fact um also same thing with this other band called uh, mambo sauce too i don't know what the fuck happened with them because they were dope like they really were trying to fuse like you know a lot of go-go ideas and rock ideas mm-hmm. um so i was so like you know maybe unconsciously or consciously and it influenced the culture or paved the groundwork so to speak you know right so okay one speaking of dc areas because you were out here in dc for a minute right um yeah so like my family's all from here and uh like for like 100 years like but my dad was military so um Basically, right after I was hatched, um, we lived in Berlin. And then uh, once in in about, like, first grade, we moved to Springfield, Virginia. My dad was a a military aide to... uh, I'm not positive if she was the first, but certainly one of the first black congresswomen um, from out here, Yvonne uh, Burke. And we lived in Springfield in a neighborhood that, uh, in retrospect, clearly had a racial housing covenant because, I mean, it was like super white, cookie-cutter houses. And um, I always wondered, I I had to piece this together over over time, um, hearing, like, my dad commented about how he paid cash for the house and he never he bought it like sight unseen, and I never really put that together till later that that was probably necessary because they had housing covenants in that area that you couldn't sell houses to non-whites. That is fucked up. Yeah, I was in 1976. Jeez. Um, and I never really put that together. Uh, but that's, I'm sure, what was going on. And then, like, before I was born, I think in about 68 or so, they bought a house in uh, in what's now called Grover Beach, um, California, and it was the same thing there. They, they, they were not... He had to do the whole transaction, you know, by wiring the funds and all that stuff because, um, you know, it, it, if you look at the deed, if you... Find an old lady that walking home from the grocery store, follow her to her house and look at the deed to her house out here, especially. And the California Real Estate Association, in their language for their contract housing sale template contract for eons, had language in there about selling your home to non whites. But it was. Yeah, that was a long time that that existed to the point where um, we know a gay couple in West Hollywood that bought a house, I don't know, 10 years ago. And the previous they, the guy happened to be a lawyer and was just curious. And he found there was a housing covenant in from the first owner. Shit. Yeah. So, I mean, that that could that could be from 1972. Or what, I don't know what it was from, but the point is that. Um, you know, that that reality kind of uh, is with us. It's not that long ago, you know. There's a certain tendency uh, 
a lot of kind of, you know, that was in the past. That wasn't me. My family, you know, didn't, that was, and it's like, eh. <laughs> it's kind of still around. I understand. I understand totally. Yeah. Like, you know, like I'm out here in PG County, right? And, okay, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm basically, okay, I'll put it this way. Here's how the dynamic changed. Remember the movie Heavy Motor Parking Lot? Which movie? The movie Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Oh, I know about it. I didn't see it, but yeah. yeah I saw parts of it. I'll put it this way. Um, the demographic of that movie has definitely changed. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Oh, I'm very, very hip to it. Um, yeah. My folks bought a, bought a place in Upper Marlboro in 89. Yeah. And my two of my brothers live in PG County. Actually, one of my brothers lives in PG County. So I'm, I'm pretty hip to it. Oh, yeah. It was the, it's the only county in America... I don't know if this is still true, but it was a few years ago. That is getting blacker and richer. Oh, that's very true. Oh, that's very true. Very true, actually. It's like we scared them off across the bridge. <laughs> well, that and I think people took, you know, they got were able to get seven-figure sums for their brownstones that were falling down. Well, that know, too. In Southeast or whatever. So. <laughs> on, your, on the website, you mentioned that you ran Harry Rollins shortly after arriving um, back to L.A. because you were there for a second, too. Did you feel like... Holy shit! Another guy from DC. This might be a sign or something, or this kind of like. Oh, yeah, that's really. It was the just like the weirdest set of circumstances because I used to at that time. I think that was when I had this little retail job at this place called the Soap Plant at Melrose and Martell, mm -hmm. and um, I think that was around that time. And uh, I was either that or I was just there at the Soap Plant, like browsing because there was a newsstand right next door and I think I was reading uh, Forced Exposure or some there was like this some some like tattoo zine or something like a I forget which one but it was like it had pictures of um, John Doe and Henry Rollins and all these and it was like this tattoo expose no and I, I was like just killing time wherever flipping through this magazine and um I just happened to clock the misfits tattoo Henry has on his like lower arm, and uh, honestly, I wouldn't have said shit. But it was like I don't know. Fifteen minutes went by. I'm walking down Sunset Boulevard, and I'm like, "That's that tattoo." I see him from like four feet away. I'm like, "That is that exact tattoo." Holy shit! And he's got like longer hair, so I didn't quite recognize him right oh, away. Yeah. And I I said. Hey man, um, I'm from DC. And I said, I think we know some of the same people. And he said, Oh, cool. And he was like, like I must have just caught him on the right day because I don't know him to be this kind of like he's not, he's not that approachable. But somehow I caught him on the right day, and we just started shooting the shit. We started shooting the shit. Um, uh, about like just this and that with like you know, people we had in common and it's a long time ago. So statute of limitations, like, like he was just like so chill that and we were having such a good conversation that he was like, well, Hey man, you know, um, so what are you doing anyway? And I was like, well, I'm trying to get a band going and, you know, trying to, you know, move out of this place that I'm in right now. And he goes, no, man, like, what are you doing right now? And I was like, well, you know, I was just going to go get something to eat. And he's like, well, come on, let's go listen to some records. And so, like, and, and thus began, like, that was, like, summer of 89-ish, I want to say. 
And this probably corresponds, I think it, it, if you looked up like Rollins band gigs, there's like this big void. They had like a bunch of, sh they had, they canceled a shitload of shows one year for some reason. And it, I think this like had just happened and he had a bunch of time on his hands and I lived around the corner and he just, he, he would like, he didn't give a shit. I was like this young kid that would be like, Hey, let's listen to, you know, I want to fucking, and he had like this combination, this record collection that had kind of everything in it that I needed, you know, and he had all this rare shit and bootlegs and there's this one wall that had um, like a cassette uh, rack. And I, if I recall correctly, it was like split into thirds of Nick Cave and Bad Brains and Coltrane. <laughs> that makes total sense for him, actually. It makes total sense. Yeah, I would not expect. That, when I saw that, like, I knew of all three very independently, and I had gone to, you know, I had a little formal music education and gone to music school and stuff, so I kind of, like, you know, was decently, and, and Nick, like, bat, uh, the birthday party in Nick Cave was also another lucky, really young introduction that I, that I got, so I was already hip to, I was way hip to that, but it was just cool that he was kind of getting it at this other level where the music didn't exist in such a separate space. To him, it was just like like literally seeing it in that cassette rack next to each other, you know? It was just like, because that dude is just all about music. He is. You know? and, and so we, like, that whole summer, like, he would, I'd just be like, you know, hey, man, like, can, can I watch your Minor Threat video from the 930 Club in 1980 or whatever? you like, sure, come on over it too, <laughs> you know, and like, we were just, like, he would let me hang out there. Yeah. Hear about your other projects though, so how did Cheater come about? Um, well, uh, I guess what happened was, um, I had been in, uh, this band called The Joy Killer, which was like, had the weird distinction of like everyone in the band had been in TSOL at one time or another. Um, the singer was, is Jack Grisham of TSOL. And then everyone else had done a stint in TSOL at some point um, or, or would do one in the future. Um, and that was really just musically, it, it was cool because it, it was essentially like a very, it was like TSOL 2.0, which I thought they were a great band. And um, that guitar player uh, really is in my lane because uh, some of the kind of like, some of the language that he really focuses on is about like kind of the British thing with like, you know, the, the damned and the jam and that kind of thing. But it's also, he's super kind of, got some like Hendrix type fluidity to his playing and stuff. So I, I always really liked that guitar player. And when, um, so here's a connect the dots. Andy, who was my bandmate in the Uncaucasians, worked at Epitaph Records. So when he called me and said, you know, Ron Emery is not going to be in this Joy Killer band with Jack and they're looking for a guitar player that can play and I'm like fuck that's totally my shit I love that guy I love the way he plays and that happens to be really in my lane so I went and I did it 
And, you know, there was this whole, like, the Orange County punk rock scene, um, which I think there's a nod to this in the book band in D.C. I think that's the Cynthia Connolly book, if I'm not mistaken. It talks about how, like, the Orange County scene out here, because like, I think Cynthia's family's from O.C., I think. And, and she talks about how, like, th it was sort of like the violence was the point out here, you know? <laughs> like, the violence and the criminality were, like, and Jack, I think Jack, Jack even had this thing about how, like, um, he used to make explosives and sell them and trade them and stuff like that. He do one now. And what's that? He do one now. <laughs> he would make explosives. He was like a bomb maker. He was a fucking nut. He was a complete <laughs> nut. And he he at one point um, he said that when he kind of discovered punk that the music was, like, totally secondary. He was like, you can do whatever you want. And, like, like he happens to be a really good singer. And, and it, like, he discovered that there was a fit for being, um, for his, his talent as a singer and for the kind of really unhinged, like, craziness that him and especially like Todd, their old drummer, like they, they were fucking really, really crazy, crazy guys. He kind of, he went to England, I think, and hung out with Adam Ant and kind of like developed this whole persona and then came back and like after they kind of, I guess they kind of gave up the ghost and did a couple reunions, but he wanted to form this new band, Joy Killer. I was in it. The whole Orange County, like, kind of tacitly or not so tacitly um, Peckerwood, white boy centric attitude. Like, I didn't let it bother me and I kind of ignored it, but there'd be these little clues here and there that that just kind of there's a, a different kind of fit, you know? And um, so that was always going to be uncomfortable. I think that literally, I believe my presence made Jack uncomfortable. Um, and uh, we did this, like, every show in, like, 1995, I think it was, we did with, we did, like, a gang of shows with Pennywise, like, every show they did. And um, what happened what started to happen, which was funny, was like the Pennywise guys, like at that time especially, they just wanted to get fucked up and like have fun and shit. Like that's more where I was at. Like was just have fun and and like I wasn't uh, like those guys in Joy Killer were all on the program and all that type of thing. And um, I was kind of a little bit more keen to hang out with the Pennywise guys and. So there kind of became this thing of, like, you hang out with those guys more than you hang out with us, and, you know, like, we want a guy who's going to be a bro, and blah, 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 and the whole thing has got super sour over time. And long story short, um, I decided that uh, I could write my own songs and do my own thing. And so I wrote a bunch of songs, and uh, I got 
a couple guys together, and I got the guitar player for Pennywise, Fletcher, um, to take it to. He had a the, the guy that put out the first Pennywise album, Mark Theodore. I got him to, you know, threaten to twist Mark's arm or something. <laughs> like, hey, you got to put this record out. And he kind of made it happen and uh, championed us. And um, we put out the record, um, Home is Where the Heart Is. Uh, I spent like a year and a half, two years, like just like gigging hard. And, uh, and then at some point, I think there was... There was a, a we did a gig where um, a music supervisor who I knew through a friend showed up, and that guy was like, you know, hey, I have this movie that I'm music supervising, which I didn't know anything about what that even meant, and he was like, you know, uh, Jamie and Christian say that you're a good songwriter, and you know do you have a song that you want to, a couple songs that you want to maybe pitch for the movie or like give us a couple ideas for like punk tracks. And so I gave him some stuff and long story short, it, it worked out and um, I had a song get licensed and I wasn't making like, you know, any, anything. I was like hemorrhaging, just like making the van payments or whatever for cheater. And, um, what ended up happening was uh, I made way more off of that one license than the band made in months. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. That's where the money is, like the fucking licensing shit. Yeah. I figured that so, a while back. I'm like, uh, okay, so that's yeah. what I'm doing. So I kind of like, I, I started thinking at that point, I have to figure out a way to do more of that and less of the like sleeping on floors playing for 30 people thing and lo and behold um, just one thing led to another I was really pleased with um, the production on the cheetah record which I did all by instinct I didn't know shit about the studio or about getting sounds about anything but I just I, I felt like I did a good job on it and I thought I could be good at it so I went to school for it you know and then while I was at that school I decided to take my education deeper, and I went and studied music composition for TV and film at a little program they have here at UCLA. And that's and then life really took a different turn, and I didn't really do much playing in bands at all, except for the occasional appearance with Norwood in Truly Disgracious. Okay, that's a question I want to ask later on, actually, right? But okay. you were also in Down by Law, too, right? Yeah, that was before Joy Killer. Yeah, that's true too. So, what was Down by Law like? Um, well, I got to kind of, uh, you know, play in a bunch of different countries and, you know, uh, play punk rock and make a little bit. Like, that was, I had done tours and stuff, but that was like a band that was on a kind of a real, they were on a real label, they were an epitaph. And, um,. You know, we were able to, like, we did, we got studio time at A&M, which is now Henson, which is, like, one of the biggest, like, most kind of renowned studios here in L.A. And it was just, like, doing things kind of in a real way, which was uh, a super upgrade for me and really eye-opening, really cool. Um, and 
you know, I'd like to think that I'm still the same person. I haven't haven't really had the the flare come up, but I remember while we were recording with Down by Law at A and M, the A and R guy said something about um, it was when the OJ verdict was being read. And it was like six white guys at a table and me. And the guy said, all I know is when they read the verdict, I'm going to say I'm your brother. And I said, um, really? Well, that could be because I think your grandfather owned my grandfather. Ha! <laughs> I bet the, the minute's ass wince. Yeah. So, Just clinch and then he And then he started with the usual... My family didn't come here on the Mayflower. We had it hard. We came from over on Ellis Island, and we had it so bad. And it's like, dude, whatever. You're saying stupid shit. You're gonna, you know, play stupid games. You're gonna win silly prizes. Oh yeah. And um, so, yeah, that was my that that was my kind of eye opening to uh, a lot of things. That was one of my prouder moments. We also, while we were at A and M. Um, uh, the band Yes was recording in one of the other rooms. Really? Which was, yeah, was, which was yeah, it was pretty cool. And like, economy. Yeah, got to kind of like you know bro down with this with Trevor Rabin, their guitar player, and he was asking me what bands he should listen to, and um, I said you should listen to the Melvins and Fishbone, <laughs> which makes sense because. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense because, you know, or because I'm thinking like, yes, Prague. The reason why basically yeah. punk started because of bands like, yes. Exactly. But it's kind of cool that the guy from Yes said, yes, the punk. So it's kind of kind of cool when you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, he was totally cool. And that was just another one of those just kind of wild, like, you know, when you're asking about the years and down by law, it was just this kind of swimming in a slightly different sea than I had ever kind of been around. And, uh, um, you know, that, that band had a decent, at the time, you know, we, we, had, we were able to get a few people down to, down to some of those shows. Um, I think that over time, the pop punk thing really dipped hard. And, uh, you know, those that got on the gravy train were were set, but those that didn't were kind of playing to crickets, which I think is where they ended up. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was a fun time. Yeah. Because I didn't know down, I didn't know they were from the West. I was the, is that the kind of like a East Coast sound to them from what I remembered? Well, I mean, it's the mixture. I mean, again, um, Dave is from DC. Dave's from Alexandria. Oh. Dave went to not uh, to Bishop Ireton. Um, it's a common misconception. People often think he's from Boston because he was in the band DYS, but that was just because that's where he went to school. He was oh, up okay. in Boston. Okay. But um, he's from there, and then I want to say that, like, I, I don't know this to be true, but I think he had he took a class out here at um, Cal State or something like that, and, and just ended up playing in the band all, oh, and so that's how he ended up out here. And then he didn't want to tour as much as they did, so he formed Down by Law. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And when I say I don't want to undersell the fact that like 
no one wanted it. All was like going to tour 365 days a year. Like no one was trying to do that. <laughs> but those I guys know. were crazy. And Dave was like, oh, man, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> What's one thing I noticed, though? Over the years, I noticed you can't just be a musician anymore. You have to basically become a musician, engineer, everything else, too. You know, That is 200% true. Yes. So when I got my start, like I was getting gigs because there were guys that couldn't afford. They had a copyist. They had a recordist. They had an engineer. They had like a staff to do a TV show. And like I would be getting shows in the beginning. I would be getting work on these TV shows because I was like, no, it's just me. Just pay me and we're done. <laughs> so I was kind of the, as they were phasing out the kind of 90s era where everything was done live and there was unions and all that kind of like, which do I, I totally wish that that was my experience, but it just wasn't. Like they were looking to get a lot of music cranked out for each episode as quickly as possible and it meant like mainly doing it in the box which I got quite good at quite quickly alright so how did you get into composing for film and TV anyway just curious um, so like the Cheater album came out really good I went to that school and I learned more about proper just production and engineering and one day on a break I noticed they had a catalog from UCLA about their arts programs and stuff. And one of them was in music composition for TV and film. And I just, I said, I like, I thought to myself, I can't, like, I don't want to rely on doing the next tour that, like, you know, I'll be sleeping on the floor of a squat or whatever in Denmark yeah. in February. Like, I, like I, I just thought to myself, I want to really kind of get my options and so um, I took the plunge, and I started going to that UCLA program. And it just, like, one miracle after another kind of lined up. I was, you know, surrounded by people that had conservatory backgrounds and, like, you know, were, were already good writers and really steeped in orchestral traditions. And kind of the first... Like, it was literally like the class was film scoring one. And the teacher um, made this comment. This is like day one. And the teacher says something about, like, you know, we have to, when we use theme and repetition, we can look at Mahler and we can look at Prokofiev, and particularly how, like, throughout their symphonic work, you know, the in the first movement, he starts going into this whole, like, I'm getting his drift, but I'm just not familiar enough with the music to relate it so I raised my hand and I'm like is this kind of like how the first five ACDC albums all sound the same <laughs> and the guy he's very white turned very pink and he was like um yeah kind of and he goes hey can you see me on the break <laughs> oh shit oh, and that's shit. what I thought like oh shit and so the guy was just like What's your story? <laughs> no one's ever asked me. No one's ever brought up ACDC, you know. And I told him I was like, I play, I play rock music, punk music, and I, just, you know, done all this touring around the world and stuff like that. And um, I was been in these bands on Epitaph and all this shit. And like, he was, he was super intrigued. And as it happened, he was working on a show. 
Now, mind you, the whole program there, especially at the time, was centered around orchestral composition, which he, to this day, he's one of the best out there. He has that in spades. But as it happens, and mind you, all of my classmates, again, wonderful orchestral writers already. I was the one who had to play catch-up, but um, it just so happened that he was working on a project that needed rock music, and he didn't know anyone that did that. So he called me, and that's how I got my start. And that, that ended up being, there was this little shake-up on Amazing Race Season 1, <laughs> where that composer left and went to CSI, I think, and then, so he, that, that was for that show, for Amazing Race. Nice. And uh, that's oh, when I got my start. Sweet. Because I was also checking out the your website, too, and it's... Okay, did I read right, or did this, it said, did you write the theme for American Gladiators? Yeah, I did. Whoa, 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 which one? The, what's it, the one in 1992? Uh, no, that was my mentor, uh, Bill Conti, wrote that. Oh, wait, this is the one where, like, Hulk Hogan was, was hosting, yeah. right? Yeah. That was you? Yeah. Sweet! Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out. Because I, I looked up, I looked it up. I was like, yeah, it's like it's vast fucking category catalog and shit. And yeah. like, remember also you mentioned you did some music for Monday Night Raw and everything. And I was trying to figure out, like, I wonder, I wonder what it was though. Because I'm watching Raw since I was like, since I was since like I was eight or nine, you know. Well, off the tip top of my head, um, so how that works is like I don't know if Raw ever commissioned me directly meaning that they called me and said we want you to do this what probably happened is that they heard a track of mine and got it and like licensed it from my oh, client okay, okay. probably because i don't i don't recall ever having a call from them or an email from them oh, okay that makes... but they have it's all licensing agreements so they oh, okay. definitely i've seen that on my statements so i know that they use it I'm kind of but, curious, basically, what piece of music would they license, though, of yours? I'm not trying to figure out. And I'm gonna be like, it's a good question. I don't. Uh, I'm gonna be. Binging. I don't know if I could easily find that out. I'm gonna be I'm binging gonna on WWE Network. I would have done it anyway, but shoot, I'm trying to figure out what years. All right, let's just for the fuck of it. Let's see here if I can. I'll 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 know pretty quickly. This is awesome. Yeah. I'll know pretty quickly if that's knowable. So is it? WWE Raw? Yeah, 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 that's it. WWE, so it shows up there. Yeah. It's being used. WWE. Uh, Monday Night War? Yeah. Okay, the track, I have a track called, I'm embarrassed to say I have no idea what the fuck that is. Let me see if I can find an audio reference. Yeah, I think Monday Night War. Cause I remember that era. Cause I was like maybe like I was definitely in the, like maybe like early like in the nineties and two thousands. So I remember that. Well, shit, man. I have the track name, but I don't seem to have the. I can't. I don't have the track. I'm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. At least uh, into the woods. I don't know what. That sounds like. Um, let's see. Let's see if it's not another one. This all checks back to like 2009 or 10. Okay. All right. It seems like it, at least. Hmm. Uh, World War. 
or WWE World hmm. 14 through 19. Is that just like a season or something? Yeah, something like that. Because I remember, like, yeah, so it's like, unless it's not, not somebody's theme music or something. World, WWE World 14, 19, and then it just says various, so they used more than one of my tracks. So. Okay, so it might have, if it wasn't somebody's theme music, it was definitely somebody's, it was definitely some kind of sting music that are in between or something like that. Probably, which is, would explain why they didn't even name it. Oh, okay, just, cool. They, they would just put that under various and then was, pay what they pay. Shoot, that was, believe it or not, one of the reasons why I started writing instrumental music, it was actually two reasons why. Frank Zappa and Jim Johnston, the guy that did all the theme music for <laughs> I shit you not. Oh, yeah? Those are reasons why, you know, it's like guys like Frank Zappa that love his compositional stuff and almost a fucking wrestling geek, you know? you know. I didn't know that about him. Yeah, yeah, well, it's about Zappa. Yeah, I yeah, I, I love all the composition, instrumental compositional stuff. You know, it's also fucking hilarious too, and also like I just love how he wrote stuff where I, I think somebody played it wrong. No, that's how he wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you fuck it up, if you if you played a mistake wrong, you're fired. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. You know. So what's like your gear setup guitar wise, and what other <laughs> instruments do you play? Um, I am mainly a guitar player. I have uh quite a collection of guitars but in Fishbone I tend to play Strats um, when we did the Alice in Chains thing I played Les Pauls I went with a burst and then I used a, I had a gold top that I used as a backup that I don't think I played for the show um, but usually uh, with Fishbone it's going to be Strats I also have uh, I usually bring you know, a few options just depending on how things are sounding and feeling on the whatever the day of the show or whatever. So um, I have a Gibson 355 that I usually bring. I have a Gretsch White Falcon that I usually bring, and I'll bring a Les Paul or two just in case, like, that ends up being the guitar for the night. But I've tended to stick with strats. Smart move on that because remember, like, I would – it's always good to have like a bunch of ones just in case, you know. Like, cause I didn't, yeah. I, I never noticed that Norwood plays like a. It's not like an acoustic bass, but it's definitely like a. Well, what is that exactly? Cause I was like, it's like, is that on a fucking acoustic bass? What the hell is he doing? Yeah, it is some kind of like semi hollow or it hollow. Is fucking it slaps is. though. You're not. You are not wrong. It's fucking dope though. I was like, yo, it looks cool as shit though. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. All right, so another... Okay, so how did Black Operator come about? Um, I was writing a lot of TV music, like really a lot, like too much for... Like it was getting crazy. And uh, I ran into Josh Freeze at NAMM, and I hadn't seen him since I was in Joy Killer. And uh, he had just quit Nine Inch Nails, and uh, he was like... You know, because sort of similar reasons. Like, they were, he was working his ass off with them. And he has four kids and wasn't seeing them or whatever. And um, I told him that, you know, I was doing this TV music thing now and uh, that I was also trying to put together. Like, I, I started thinking about, like, doing my own stuff as well. And he's like, well, you know, if you need a drummer, call me. And so... Um, I started kind of just rethinking my whole work because he's just such a, a beast and such a mensch of a person that I thought like, okay, if I can work with people of that caliber, like 
let's make the work, let's make it worth it. Let's like really, so I really started to rethink my whole work life at that time. And I started working with him. Um, we tracked a bunch of songs and it just kind of started me kind of down a path of um, different collaborations and stuff. And uh, the stuff I did with him um, came out really good, but there's a but. And the but is that um, Andy, who's been my engineer since, uh, played Josh one of the mixes. And we were like kind of getting it part, you know, just getting it dialed in. And I don't know if he knows, I don't know if I've told him this to this day, but he heard it and he was like, that is fucking great. And then he, and then the ultimate deal killer was he said, it sounds like Soundgarden. And the, the deal killer was like, okay, he meant it as a compliment. It's, I totally understand, but we're doing something wrong if it sounds like, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm trying to, go the road less traveled here and so we literally that one comment put us back in the studio for like years <laughs> we went back in I started hiring um, that's what kind of prompted me to um, find Mike Garson who played on all the Bowie records the keyboard player I really wanted to take this I I did not want anybody to hear this and say, oh, it sounds like, you know, with some convenient answer. Like, especially like something that's just so squarely, you know, 90s rock. So it really pushed me inadvertently. He didn't, you know, certainly mean to do it. It was what, but it just drove me in the direction of really trying to make the project unique. And so we spent a couple more years on it, just like I said, kind of collabing with different people, um, expanding the sound. I brought in a saxophone. <laughs> we did all this shit to just really... Um, and then it got to this point where I just kind of felt like it was getting pretty close to done. And it snuck up on me, and I was like, I think this record's done. And... Um, yeah, so once, once sort of... Finalized. I have some uh, my my day job is a you know writing music puts me in contact with uh, people from publishers and labels and whatnot. And the project, unfortunately, has been kind of tied up. Um, I was kind of banking on on something paying off that really has does does not seem like it's going to. So. Um, it's been a little frozen in terms of actually getting it properly released, but I really, uh, you know, it's a, it's I'm, it's starting to light a fire. I mean, it's it's I got to get that out there. So that is definitely a priority for you know I'd say 2021. I look for I look forward to that. You know, all right now here's the big question because all right I've been trying to figure this out since because i remember when the guitar player for uh, the previous guitar player john bingham left right so i was like mm -hmm. okay and i'm not gonna lie i had no idea who they're going to bring in because i was like i was like placing bets and shit like that i'm not a bet man either actually right mm -hmm. and i'm like huh so how'd you get in with the fishbone crew anyway you know i'm trying to figure this out oh because uh, well, you're here for a minute, and I'm like, how can how can this dude gone past my fucking radar? I mean, like, 
shit. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, as I described, like, you know, we moved from Springfield to uh, Annandale, which is a little deeper out. Actually, that first we moved to Fort Myer and then to Annandale. And out, out in uh, Fairfax County, and I joined the band Young Caucasians. And uh, the night before I took my SATs, which wild guess would put it at about March of 1988, or maybe, I don't know, something like that, um, uh, we played a show at the Pterodactyl Club in Charlotte, North Carolina, with Fishbone. And um, when I moved to L.A., I spent a lot of time with, uh, and even kind of lived with this guy Rob Ladd, who's a drummer, who's in a band called The Pressure Boys, that did a lot of touring with Fishbone, and Rob is the drummer on Alanis Morissette um, on You Oughta Know. Um, good, good dude, awesome dude, and he had done a bunch of touring with Fishbone, and so we would go see them and stuff, and I got to like, you know, I would tag along, and, and ironically... None of them remember any of this, <laughs> I don't think. But I had had multiple exposures and multiple times meeting and multiple times. And then what started to get crazy was like I started running into Norwood at the grocery store and at the Petco and wherever. And so I was like, okay, I got to really like make this – like I keep running into these dudes. So like at one point I was like, hey, dude. You don't remember me, but here's who I am, and blah blah blah, and and uh, that was probably by that time it's probably 2000, 2001 or something like that. But uh, yeah, so you know, over time, just kind of like we just kind of kick it, hang, have lunch, uh, sometimes uh, do a little jamming, recording. I would, you know, sit in with Trulio. Whatever, we just kind of became really good friends. And then over, over time, like, as I started to take off with composing, I was able to kind of like, you know, I, I would work with them on different projects or whatever. And, uh, and there's, you know, I, I could probably say that since about, maybe 2014, 15, it started to make my radar, because until then, from about 2001 till 2014, 15, there was no way I could be in any band, because I spent 18 hours a day writing TV music, you know, and I had no, I had no staff, no help, no nothing. And as I started to kind of like, work with a team and I started to like have enough steady work and workflow that like it got more interesting to me the idea of being in a band you know and in doing the black operator project was the perfect opportunity to work with Norwood again and it was sort of during that that he was like you know hey man here's what's going on like I think we're going to bring JB back I was like, oh, cool, that's awesome, good for you, you know. <laughs> and he, and uh, he's like, but this record's really great, man. And if there's ever, you know, 
if there's ever a time, you know, I that we need another guitar player, I hope that you'll pick up the phone. I was like, well, shit, fuck yeah, I would, you know. And uh, then over time, like, at a certain point, um, we needed, they needed, it was, a, it was a, a mutually beneficial arrangement where uh, we shared a studio space while JB was in the band. And uh, so my gear was actually kind of already there. And I would be in there, you know, Tuesdays at 7 or whatever it was, and we'd just kind of switch off. And, um, and they would come check out what I was doing, you know, I would hang out and be like, okay, you guys got a new song, you want to lay down some tracks, like, I'll, I'll, you know, I would have my engineer there and be like, okay, let's we'll record a couple things. And it kind of, we got used to kind of hanging and working and whatnot, and then, um, and then it had to be, uh, I think, According to Wikipedia, it's a year ago tomorrow that I was actually officially in the band. I think that's true. From the looks of it, because I remember you, I remember you announced it because uh, I remember you made a status message about that. Actually, I was like, "Oh, did I? Oh, yeah, you, you did. You said so. I'm a, now I'm I'm in Fishbone now. You know. Yeah. I think I might have delayed that though because my I was jamming with some other dudes and people were starting to get tell me about how they were psyched to see me play with them and I was like oh shit I'm gonna I, I wasn't gonna make a stink about it or like make an announcement but people were texting me about getting on the guest list to see a band that I wasn't in anymore so that's what prompted me to like be like okay I'm not in that band anymore because <laughs> now I'm doing this yeah because the JB I mean I think that for you know I never even really asked but it just seemed evident that nobody wanted to make a stink about a transition or about like you know, him leaving me going, whatever, just because lineup changes are always, you know, come with a lot of, this is a lot of crap, you know, so, um, with the, the, I think the, I think the idea was just, let's just do it, let's just go out there and do it, and just let the chips fall, and that's what we did, <laughs> like, yeah. I think like you're a fucking great fit though, because I remember like because I was because I'm already mentioned that John Bingham left. I was trying to figure out, okay, so who are we gonna bring back? I was like, I wasn't gonna bring in. So it's like, well, Rocky George is, is playing with Hurtful and Chromax right now. Um, yeah. Maybe they're gonna bring in. Nah, they're gonna bring him in. Nah, they're gonna. Well, how about nah? I was like, wait, who's Mark Phillips? <laughs> you know. But then, <laughs> and then I look up like, oh shit, you know. Yeah. It's all that you're, it's all that you're like, like this, like this secret weapon or some shit like that. Yeah, so, something like that. And I, you know, I kind of kept it. I kept it like that. I've kept it pretty under the radar. Um, you know, mainly because like the the TV gig, it's 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 it, I do well at it, and there's no like I don't need any hassle or people hitting me up for shit left and right. So I always kept my profile to a minimum. Yeah, yeah, because that's and, the thing um, about it. Like, it's really this cool aura mystery, so to speak, you know? Because <laughs> I'm like, because I, it, I'm not, it's, it's almost like, I was like, it's like, yo, this, it was like, well, who's this, yo, this, this dude's fucking perfect, you know? Right on, yeah. It, 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 from the beginning, for me, the first thing we did, just fucking around, was we um, played like a reggae version of 
um, suffragette city. <laughs> nice. Just fun. And that, and it was just like, all of us were just like, cool, this is, this is, and in fact, you know what, there were other times, there was one time when, um, my gear was all set up and like, I happened, literally just happened to be in the room and, um, Chris has this obsession with my Gretsch White Falcon oh, yeah. and they were rehearsing. And Chris was like, "Hey, Mark, why don't you strap up and put on, you know, play the White Falcon?" I was like, "Okay." In the middle, of, and so I, I, I jammed with them while JB was in the band. That's and, lo, you know what that that kind of like low key set the groundwork because you know what it's like. Even though you were jamming, I was like, "Yo, we kind of they, they maybe unconsciously they realized, you know what this guy kind of fits, you know." Yeah, I'd like to think that's something that was at work was that as as the as JB's son was setting that it it became obvious that there was somebody around the corner who really by that point I was I really would was just like I couldn't believe it. I was so psyched when it was the worst circumstance ever because um my, I'd lost both my parents uh, in a short period of time, and I had to go get on a plane, and um, and it was like, okay, totally get it. And actually, by by, I didn't tell anybody. Like when my when my mother had passed, and like they um, only reason why. I, told them was because it was it just became this necessity because I had to leave town and they were like okay well we have something we got we kind of really have to talk to you about <laughs> and I was like okay I gotta catch a plane at two and they're like okay can you meet at 11 <laughs> I'm like okay so it was like so I sat down with fish and we kind of talked it out and um and then when I got back like we sort of kind of started hitting it a little bit and um you know the rest is the rest is history, as they say. Totally, you know. Now, yeah. all right. I guess the final question. So, all right, planning them bones, and also having, you know, the original guitar player. It's like Kendall, yeah, having Kendall. Was, what was it kind of like? You know, like sharing a stage with Kendall. Was there like so? What was that kind of vibe like? Just curious. What was the vibe like with Kendall? Yeah, like basically, because I'm like. Cause I'm always, I've always noticed Fishbones might like a one guitar band because they've tended to have two guitars in the same time actually. But I noticed there's like there's seven motherfuckers in that goddamn band. What there's six yeah. motherfuckers in that goddamn band? I'm trying to figure out like how could two guitars fit in the first place? I mean, yeah. it could work theoretically, you know? Yeah, I mean, it it could, but I mean that was sort of a special circumstance. Kendall was uh, sort of at the center of the relationship between Allison Chains and Fishbone. Yeah, Cantrell just really dug him and stuff, you know. Cause... Yeah, they were they were their buddies, so it kind of it kind of became uh, you know just a very special. Oh yeah, was... one off type yeah. situation. Um, and it was you know like it's hard to kind of uh, get to know someone's musical you know their pocket and their their thing in a really short period of time but i think oh, yeah. we managed i think we we jammed a few times and we got on really well and oh yeah yeah like but yeah it's like one of those kind of cool things so it's like in a weird way like for if i'm going to work with somebody i like to have like a rapport so it's not just like this cold hollow thing 
you know mm-hmm. so it's like you know felt like even if like you know probably it's like i don't remember it's like i don't remember you from back then maybe unconsciously it was like oh yeah 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 you know maybe something like that too <laughs> i can see that happening shoot yeah i mean like you know there's like there's only there's a lot of uh you know if you watch the movie moneyball i think it illustrates kind of it's a good parallel to how i came to be in fishbone like they were looking at like people's abilities in a different way in that movie i don't know if you're familiar with it but they were scouting baseball players and saying like that guy would be a great asset and somebody would be like yeah but you know he hasn't hit a homer in 5 years but he does but he's got these whatever stats that would be unusual that made him and they put together this crazy ass kicking baseball team based on you know looking for people that like weren't as you said like the rocky george like this the the obvious like go to of just get a guy who's already been in the band or whatever like yeah i mean i think that they where where we are at right now um if i were just advising them i would say i think that like probably new blood in that position is probably the best call agreed you know like i put it this way i'm one of my favorite bands ramones right um you know what i really did like it when cj was in the band you know dude totally he lit it's like you know it's like Didi was cool. He did bring him to the hardcore era, but CJ brought him basically like a fresh lifeblood. You know, he did totally. So it's like you know, it's amazing how that one person can spark you know something in them. You know, so there you go. Yeah, and I just think that you know, for better or for worse, um, I got a major break from touring and you know, band hijinks. I got a huge break from it, so I'm a lot more mellow and fresh you know <laughs> so i think it's it ends up being a good my, my you know whatever perspective i i have is hopefully um you know kind of like i said mellow fresh beneficial and and kind of serves the purpose of bringing the band as far as we can go in 2020 and beyond when do you think bands will start getting to touring again actually right because i'm thinking like 2020, like the first six or seven months of 2021, ain't gonna do shit. Maybe I think like around fall, they're gonna start opening stuff up. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, I'll put it to you this way: I don't know if my answer is rational, but I'm gonna say I hope it's earlier than that. But I think what you're saying is the most realistic. And then I could go another way and say that. Um we should prepare ourselves that what you're saying is optimistic and that it could, you know, it really, if they don't get the vaccine right or yeah, we hit some snags, like it could push, it could push past the fall. Exactly. Cause I'm just like keeping an eye on it though. Cause I'm, cause I'm like, I, shoot my theory. I think is it's like, a zone. I think it's a zone that goes from, you know, maybe June till November. <laughs> like yeah, it could be any any time in there i can see that but i'm like you know what i think is going to happen in 2026 everyone's going to party twice as hard because that'll be the only time that the same days of 2020 will actually line up again ah there you go they're going to go fucking crazy in 2026 that's what i think but right I, you know what i really dug the stream that y'all deal with no effects though 
I really fuck with that heavy, you know? Oh, cool, that yeah. That fucking dope. Like, you know, I can see that, like, in evolution of that, actually, you know? Okay, so I guess it's safe to say that, you know, Fat Mike, you know, was a peer to the band, or at least kind of, I don't want to say we're a fan, because I would say peer, or, you know, or contemporary to, the, to Fishbone, right? Mm-hmm. So what was yeah. it kind of like having somebody from, like, an outside but inside point of view on, like, a Fishbone album basically pop in? I mean, you know, there's just, he's playing the role of the, of the producer, and we respect his talent and his vision and his, um, his particular get-down. He's really good at, like, you know, kind of getting a certain sound that we thought would be a good fit for right now. And um, we're enjoying the process. He is, you know, never a dull moment. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I think he said that uh, Fishbone was the only band that No Effects ever did an opening tour for. Holy shit! Were, they, right. Yeah, they liked them. They liked them so much that they were like, "We we will totally open for you." <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, shit, it makes sense and everything. That's a yeah. damn good point. I never thought about it until like right now. You're right. So he's he's. I mean, he, he loves. He really loves the band, and he's really, you know, supportive. And uh, you know, he did like half the battle in life is if you can find if somebody wants to collaborate with you and uh, is rooting for you. You know, that's a good place to start. <laughs> And and he just ended up being this very. We were headed in possibly a different direction at first, and um, you know this just became like this guy really wants to do this. So like let's let's buckle down and make it happen. And you know it's six of us, and he's running an empire, so. It's not. Um, this is not like old school where we're bunkered in there for X amount of time or whatever until it's you know the record's done. So it's it's definitely been. Um, and plus, COVID has made it really difficult to kind of uh, keep continual work on the on the project. You know, so. But it is it is coming along. I look forward to it. You know. That's another thing too. I'm trying to figure out, like, how does one navigate recording basically during during an era of social distancing? I'm trying to figure that shit out. I mean, I kind of have an idea, but it still feels kind of weird. Actually, at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's there's masking. There's if you're not if you're not needed at the moment, you probably are hanging either by the pool or by the, out in the lobby, or you know what I mean. You just kind of do your best to keep your distance if you're not needed that day or you're not needed for a few hours then maybe you bounce you know that's fair you know so yeah we just kind of try to keep it to and yeah if you're not needed like you know if, if you know that that you're not needed on a particular day or whatever then you they just kind of you just try to cut down on the amount of interface you know it's just the most sensible way to go about it and the minute you know um, you know, we've had a couple situations where, oh, so-and-so came in contact with somebody who later tested positive, so then, boom, shut down. <laughs> Understood know. completely, Lothar. <gasps> yeah. So, because I was trying to figure, so, like, okay, for this album right here, so, 
because the thing with fish, I've always wondered how to record it though. Like, you know, is it like full band style or is it like tracked individually? Um, at least in this case, you know. I mean, it's a little bit of both. Um, I'm trying to think if we kept any of the. I think we've kept. I think we did. There's one thing we did a live take of, and I think that's what we're working with, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, but then there's others. There's others. It's just kind of depends, and there's been other stuff where, uh, um, it's more in pieces, and uh, some stuff. You know, then there's like, okay, we have that, we like it, but now you know what? It's we're going to go a different direction or we want to do it faster. I think that's happening with one thing. So we're going to scrap what we did and redo it. So, hey, this is what you got to do. Like, you know, like I'm doing it with my buddy Jake right now. It's like, you know, cause he's over in um, Silver Spring right now. I'm over here in Bowie. Wait, what's in Crofton? No, 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 no. It's not Crofton. Wait, what? I keep getting Wheaton and Crofton confused. I think because of the Owen at the end. No, right. over out in Wheaton, Silver Spring area. My bad. Um, he's over in that area. Right. And I'm like, listen, I've been hunkered down in my basement. I've been keeping a lower profile in a sly fucking stone, okay? <laughs> you know, without the drugs to keep me entertained. So I'm very bored. I gotta do something, man. So, but yeah, it's like, right. it's that kind of thing where you, like, in this case, I'm like balancing tracks back and forth and stuff, you know, and also like send some stuff out to my other buddy, Dika, who happens to be a friend with, like, you know, with the band, with, with Fishbone, actually, you know, like, Whenever I'm in Detroit, you know, she helps me out with a lot of stuff, you know. So, you know, it's kind yeah. of cool, you know. So, but either way, I've always wanted to kind of flex this muscle right now to, like, bounce tracks in between. Anyway, so I get the bugs out and everything. I'm just still a little hesitant and everything. I'm like, I'm keeping an eye on the news and everything to see what's going to happen with this. Okay. Yeah, man. Like, shit. It's like, you know, like, no, I'm, it's like, you know, I'm not one of those anti-vaxxer dudes or nothing like that. But I'm like... All right, I'm just want to make because never forget, don't forget what Viagra was meant for originally. It was not; it was meant for heart medication. Right. It was. I remember when, it, when, it, when they said, "I'll never forget." It was ABC Seven, Seven on Your Side. I was twelve years old, and they said, "Also, apparently, the heart medication gives apparently gives um patients painful erections." And I never laughed that hard in my life. So that's how I remembered. And then it was so guys like, wait, 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 maybe we could work with this right here. That's funny. And I was like, I never laughed that hard at a news story in years. So that's hilarious. And you're reminding me that when I was like in elementary school, I was, I wanted to be on seven on your side. I would like do good deeds. Just like, I want to be on seven on your side. (laughs) Shoot. See, you know, right there. It's like, you know, I was supposed to be on CB, the CBS morning show actually. Yeah. But it's like, it's like, it was a, it's a long story actually. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, didn't happen. So what? I said it didn't happen, huh? Uh, you know what? It's not that it didn't happen. I'm an optimist, surprisingly enough. It didn't happen yet. There you go. That's the best way to look at it. It didn't happen yet. So not yet. That's how I like to look cool. at stuff, you know? So everybody says they have a lookalike, right? Or a celebrity lookalike, right? Hello? Everybody, uh-oh. Like, I get Omar Gooding Glitchy. sometimes. When I was slimmer, I get Omar Gooding and shit, you know? Okay. So I always kind of felt like, you know, it's like, damn, I forgot my question. <laughs> Everybody has a lookalike. Yeah, something like controversy. that. Controversy. I forgot what's going Is with. Is the controversy that people say that I look like Kendall? 
I was I was kind of wondering about that because I never saw it though. I was wondering what are your thoughts on that though. Uh, so I mean that's a whole other just funny side story that like. <laughs> I mean like. All right. Okay, here's here's a good here's a good funny side story. Right, I um, gotta hear this because I admit it. I did see one picture when you were younger, like on your page. I saw Kendall. I was like, what the fuck? You know, I was like, so this is why they take people's fingerprints. <laughs> yeah. Now I I I know the picture you're talking. There's two that that like I put in a folder and I showed to the band. Like, holy shit! Like, so did they ever say anything or, like that, or was it just kind of like come to think of it? Well, now here's the thing. So. Maybe six years ago, when I was deep in the weeds figuring out what to do with Black Operator, and like Josh Freeze joined ten different bands and he wasn't around, I want I decided I wanted to kind of finish like the project with Thomas Pridgen, but I didn't know him at all. Yo, you know Thomas? But I did at the time. I didn't know him at all. We're we're good friends now, but at the time I didn't know him, and so Norwood was working with him and Eric McFadden, and so I was like. Um, Norwood, can you introduce me to Thomas? And like, as a just a what the fuck, he was like, sure. Like, we're playing in San Francisco. So I'm like, guess I'll go to San. Fr- I just what the fuck. So I went up to San Francisco for the sole purpose of hooking up with Thomas Pridgen, which I did. We fucking got on great. He was like, cool, yeah, I'll work with you. Awesome, dope. So we we been you know that's going on six years now. We've been doing different projects and shit, and like. Um, and so I go in to the venue, and then they clear everybody out before they start letting people in. And this guy sees me and Norwood together, and uh, I guess he he starts getting excited. And then later, I see the dude giving me a weird look, and I'm like, what the fuck is that guy's deal? Later, the guy comes up to me, and he goes, are you Kendall? And I, la- I was like, motherfucker like i don't look shit like kendall what are you talking like i was insulted and offended and got the whole like we don't all look alike attitude right so i said you know we all reconnect later after the show and i say to norwood bro you will never guess what happened to me when we were in the hall after they cleared us out of the venue he goes what i said this dude straight up stepped to me and asked me if i was kendall and norwood said Huh. I guess I could see that. And I was like, you can? And he's like, yeah, kind of. And it started to flip my take on it a little bit. And then from that moment on, it happened like five more times. <laughs> eh, it happens like literally I got like Omar Gooding two or three times in a fucking day. It was kind of weird. Like, And I just, here's the weird thing about it. I was like, man, that's bullshit. And then I put like a picture side by side. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. So I there's certain pictures like uh where I started to be able to see it and then um and then it got real crazy in the beginning when people were assuming that I was him or whatever. Like I I was I have some I have some like during that period I put some in a folder and I was showing them to Norwood like me and Kendall side by side, and, and some of them are. Some of them, I, I just for the fuck of it, I was gonna put them on that fan page, but I, I don't know if I will because they're they're like when I was younger and stuff. And like that, there's this one promo photo that they did 
that's used a lot where Kendall's in this purple top. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's like a light. I think I do. I purple, think I do. purple long sleeve. There's a. I have like a couple where like that's kind of a dead ringer. That there's a few pictures where and when I had dreads and when I was heavier and had dreads. Yeah, that was the one. That was like. Yeah. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. And yeah. It, it started to make sense to me when people started to kind of make that connection. Um, and we have, you know, we're guitar nerds and trekkies yeah. and we have, we have weird shit in common. But, like, if you put us totally side by side, we actually don't look that much alike. No, because I was like, <laughs> nah. Yeah. I was like, you know, it's like... I was like, nah, because I was like, what a weird coincidence. Basically, both are on stage, basically rocking the them bones. That's the other thing, too. I was like, that'd be really... Said, you know what now everybody's saying now, right? After the Alice in Chains thing? Mm-hmm. It's like, we, now everybody wants to see, uh, see a straight heavy metal fishbone album right now. <laughs> Bro, uh... Like... Let me tell you, like... like evil, satanic, like, horn-driven metal. They want to see that. Like, nothing plucky or bright. It's like... See, how can we basically fuse horns and metal almost like, you know, the first, as I'm kind of curious what that would sound like. And I'm like, y'all kind of, yeah. exp- kind of like basically a really cool lady. It's like, so that's what that would sound like. That's not dope as shit. <laughs> well, I can tell you that, um, that probably, that, that, that wasn't, let me just say this, like, that was not necessarily on the radar, but when we did Them Bones, I think it definitely occurred to everybody, like, wow, we do this thing really well. Like, Yeah, y'all did so it better. Like, it seriously, y'all did the perfect it, version. It's well, thank like, you. It wouldn't surprise me if, like, I don't know if it's on this, but, like, there'll, there'll be... We There's been some texts even today about, like, some, like, hey, let's do this. Like, some names that haven't been in the like, hey, remember that thing that was kind of like Sabbath? I'm like, oh, okay. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. This is so we're, we're we're starting to, like some of that conversation has come up a little tiny bit. I don't know how much it'll make it to the record, but it's it definitely opened. I think it opened everyone in the band's eyes that like, you know, we have a sound when we play that kind of music. That um, we it's just you know a song like Servitude is like you know in slim kind of, uh, yeah so it's like I've always kind of really dug that you know like it was kind of like how when Living Color basically went like more metal so to speak it was almost yeah. like kind of more on the grunge side it feels like they did a better version of what was out there you right know? and it also feel like y'all just like this evolved version of it though I'm like like shit it feels like now I can't go back and listen it's almost I put it this way. Like, the song Trial of Tenderness is by Otis Redding, right? It was actually a cover from some song in the 30s, right? It sounds vastly different than the one that Otis Redding did, but everybody does Otis Redding's version. Exactly. It's like, yep. nobody does the version anymore. That's, it wouldn't sound right anyway. Like, everybody does that version of it, though, you know? Yeah, so and honestly, like, I didn't know I didn't know that Otis Redding was doing a cover, so there you go. Me neither. I didn't know until, like, <laughs> until like 2009. It fucked my head up. So right. I'm like, shoot, it's almost feel like y'all... One when I when I first started like hanging out with the whole band, like when we were all getting to know each like a few years ago, and we were all kind of because there was little shit where like um, uh, I traveled with them. Basically, I took a free ride to just see a friend of mine up north, and uh, and 
during that whole thing. Um, uh, we were just kind of like in the dressing room or whatever, and I, I mentioned, you know, we didn't, you know, just kind of like I hadn't hung out with everybody at the same time before, but I started talking about how like I can never get straight between Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, and Al Green, who got shot, who died in a plane crash. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I can't, like, and who's alive? Like, I, I, for some reason, my head could never, like, I always have to think about that, you know? Yeah, and, uh, it does. Cause, and yeah. so, but, but that was a funny kind of, like, first conversation to have with everybody because instantly, like, there was all this backstory and, like, you know, Sam Cooke, you know, there's conspiracy theories that one guy had about, like, no, it was Bobby Womack. Yeah, wife, I heard about that, All too. this shit, like, it just started this whole deep, hilarious conversation where I was like, whoa, I've never hung out with these dudes on this level, but this is pretty fucking amusing. It really is, though. It's like, I can I can see that happening, though. And also, I'm just, all I'm going to say over here is this. Um... Bobby Womack was a fucking was a fucking savage. I mean, is it? I heard the story about he went to Sam Cooke's funeral in one of his suits. Oh damn! You know, and also I'm not saying he might have something to do with it, but he did have a song called "I Wish You Wouldn't Trust Me So Much." All right, so you're on the uh, Norwood page of Bobby Womack did it. <laughs> um, I'm just saying. Um, a lot of people share that same book, so I'm I'm not saying that Bobby has something to do with it. I'm saying maybe. Yeah. Maybe the thought crosses his mind and everything. Yeah, I don't say he's the trigger man, but I'm saying no. It, that was the that was how the yeah that was exactly sort of what ended up happening, and it just devolved into this hilarious conversation. And those guys, like the knowledge that you have to have to hang in that room, there was one point at which, um, like, I have a pretty I, I'm pretty decently musically knowledgeable. But, however, every now and then, there'll be some shit that, like, slipped me that I just didn't know. And we were talking about Hot Buttered Soul earlier, and um, when there was a time in rehearsal when I said something about how uh, Walk On By was the best Isaac Hayes song. And somebody piped in and corrected me. It was like, well, yeah, you know, Dionne Warwick. And I'm like, no, 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 Isaac. Hitler. And they're like, and then the room got deep. The room got deep. Like, motherfucker, you don't know that that's Dion Warwick. <laughs> oh my god! And I was immediately. I felt that shark-like thing of like, this is shit you're supposed to know, man. And I was like, oh fuck, wow, no, I. That's right. I totally forgot that that's the same song. I did, you never, know, because it was so vastly fucking different. It's so different. It's like, like it never occurred to it's, me. It's almost like Dion Warwick's version, almost like Bossa Nova, almost in comparison. Yeah. Like, like Isaac's version is almost like it's not goth, but it's it's basically is very morose. You know, yeah. like you feel the fucking pain. Mark, it's an honor to great. It's an honor to chat with you. You know, I look forward to seeing you live with Fishbone. It's like, um, is there anything else you wanted to check out in the meantime until like Fishbone's ready with the new album? Anything you want to check out or anything? Uh, you know, that's just mainly where the focus is right now is on making new music with Fishbone. And uh, we're very much looking forward to bringing that to the world. Hopefully this uh, COVID shit will get behind us 
sooner than later, and I'll see all of you. And boy, especially for, I don't know if you have a DC-centric audience, but uh, I have a feeling I'm going to have quite a guest list Ooh, for yeah. that show. Yo, uh, it's like I, w- I would love to roll through because I haven't seen Dirty Walt in a minute. I mean, I would love to meet you, you know, like kind of get right on. With no, we'll stuff. make it happen. Shoot, we'll make you know. it happen. Yo, so is any what's cool? We can find you on social media, anything like that too, or like that. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I I'm a little light on that stuff, but yeah, if people want to find me, they probably can. Okay, <laughs> all right, fair enough. Yeah, great. Cool. Chat. All right, all right great, man. Great chat with you. Peace. Yeah, you too. thanks, John. Bye. Hey, that was Mark Phillips. Great chatting with him. Check out markphillipsmusic.com for more information. He's not a big social media guy, but all the stuff we talked about, it's on the website. Also, keep an eye out for Fishbone's new album. And also, like, share, and subscribe to the show. Take it easy.